Election Day, 1920. Well, it's Election Day in Orange County uh, and across the nation. So we, the accounts of November 2nd are really dynamic to speak to because there are so, so many versions of the story. And every version of the story likely has some element of truth. That's historian Pam Swartz, and the events of November 2nd and 3rd will be talked about in secret for the next 100 years. Two black men, Moses Norman and July Perry's names would become synonymous with the Okoe massacre. That election night, Norman ran for his life and Perry was involved in a shootout with a deputized posse, wounded, captured, taken from jail, and lynched. I'm Vanessa Eccles. In this episode of the Okoe Massacre podcast, journalist Melanie Holt joins me to talk about how the Perry family's oral history helps us piece together much of what happened that violent election night. Mel, thanks for joining me. In the Okoe Massacre documentary, you focused on Mr. Perry's descendants and descendants of other people there in Okoe. Going into this project, tell me, what did you know about the Okoe Massacre? Honestly, Vanessa, very little. And I lived over in West Orange County for some time, and this is not something that I heard people really talking about. So there are so many questions about what actually happened that night, because documents, of course, are scarce. This was 1920. One looming question is whether July Perry and his wife actually voted that day, right? What do we know? We actually know from the oral history of the family, and it was his great-grandson who told us that he believes that July Perry had the opportunity to vote and that his friend Mose Norman did not, obviously attempted to and was unsuccessful. But we found nothing in the historical record that says that July Perry actually voted. We know that it was his intention to, uh, but we don't know if he was actually successful or not to this day. And so that's one of the things that the historians are like, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. As you said, we just don't know. So in the documentary, we hear from the man that you mentioned, Stephen Nunn. His grandmother was July Perry's daughter. She was in the house that night that the white mob came to the Perry's home looking for Moses Norman. But still, this was not a story that he grew up hearing about. You would think that maybe this was, you know, talked about a lot. It wasn't. From what he told us, his grandmother, Caritha Caldwell, did share some stories with he and his sister, but it wasn't something that she talked about often. It was something that they hadn't heard before, and it wasn't even something that they knew for many, many years that had had been shared with more than one family member. But obviously, when she told them this, they were still children. So she obviously couldn't tell them as much of the story as maybe she would have liked to, given, given their age, but she gave them an idea of what had happened to her when she was very young and, and what happened to her father, because her memories of it were vivid. She was shot um, when her father was taken from their home in Ocoee. So she shared, she shared a lot, but she probably didn't share as much as she could have, just given their young ages at the time. And even when he talks about that conversation, the first conversation they had, he really, it was painful for him to talk about 
how it pained her. It was a difficult conversation for her to go into detail about what happened. I mean, obviously it was traumatic. Of course, even when they were hearing this story, the whole reason they were hearing it in the Tampa area is because their grandmother was forced to flee her home. She fled with her mother, Estelle, uh, and they talked about, really, they were in an armed confrontation with a deputized mob. Um, I I'm sure they knew if they left, and, and it sounds like his grandmother, Caritha Caldwell, didn't want to leave, um, but her father insisted, you go, you go. Um, and she she refused to leave at first, but but eventually made it out of their home and could, you know, hear that gunfire. Uh, she couldn't have known at the time what was going to happen to her, her father, but she knew then, uh, I mean, being wounded herself, he was wounded, that it wasn't going to be good. So you interviewed Gladys Bell. She's an important part of the storytelling here because her father actually escaped Okoe that night. And she says that she's related to the Perrys, but what's, what's her story? She would be July Perry's great niece. Her father was just 18. His name was Richard Allen Franks. He was 18 when he escaped uh, the race riot that night. And they talked about, it was interesting. She told me her family knew trouble was coming. They knew that the, the African-Americans there in Ocoee wanted to vote, intended to vote. There had been threats. They expected trouble and even had a plan of where they were going to go, a plan of escape, because they thought that there might be trouble this night. I don't think they could have known just how much. Um, but she said her father, who, who was 18, basically um, fled their home, which was destroyed by fire. It was destroyed by in, in this riot. Um, they escaped to Plymouth, an another part not too far away, still in Orange County, to a, a relative's home there. And they had to escape through, through the swamps around Lake Apopka, if you can imagine, in the night, hearing this gunfire and trying to stay low, trying not to make too much noise for fear that Klansmen uh, were, were going to shoot them, you know, in the woods. It, one of the, the, the most um, memorable things that I think she told me was, in fact, you know, her father had to carry one of his siblings on his back because mm. he was able to walk. He carried him. Can you imagine carrying him through that swamp on his back, trying to keep them safe and get all of his siblings out of harm's way? And they even had she uh, reeds with them. And I thought about that. And I thought about the water and the swamp. And I said, so if they have to dive into that water, they carry these reeds with them so that they could get air mm. if they have to hide from these Klansmen. I can't imagine um, trying to escape by moonlight through through the, the swamps, through around Lake Apaka, uh, an area I know well, um, in the middle of the night under gunfire. I, I can't imagine. At she just paints a terrifying scene of what that must have been like. And she has written a book about the family's history and about Okoe. So why, did she indicate why now, why she has written the book now? I, I, I don't think it was a, a, she wrote it a few years ago. She wrote it a few years ago from, from what she told me. And it was visions through my father's eyes. It was like a, a, a recollection of the election massacre. 
And a, a lot of it were, were his memories. And, and obviously she tells his story very vividly of what he experienced. Um, and, and it had a lot of old articles from the newspapers at the times, which are quite remarkable the way they describe it, um, how, how they describe the situation that unfolded in Ocoee. But, but not like the recollection that you hear from these family members, of course. It's very telling how different the stories are. But one of the, I, I think part of the reason that she did it too is she said her father was a man of faith. And despite what happened to him as a very young man in Akoi, what happened to his family, losing their home, losing their property, nearly losing their lives, obviously July Perry did, being forced to start over, he never held hatred in his heart for anyone. She talked about, I guess, the power of his faith and forgiveness and never harboring he, it, it's easy in a situation like this, you could see how a person could become hateful or, or hold animosity toward other people. Her father never did that. And I, I think that was an important message for her and maybe part of the reason that she wanted to write this book. Not just that, to tell the story. I, like I said, I was unfamiliar with, with much of it myself. If no one tells the story, how can we know what happened? Hmm. So you get the sense from her that she did grow up hearing the story and details of the story. Absolutely. And, and I, she said from the time she was knee high, her father would tell her uh, about a Koei. Whenever he went by, he would say, we used to own property there. He, he even told them about starting over. You know, they went to Plymouth. He, you know, he's selling oranges. He's, you know, clearing land at night. He's basically building his life over for his family and trying to make a better way from them after leaving, you know, after leaving the Carolinas. So he, he talked about, you know, what they had, why they came, what they lost, and rebuilding too. I mean, you know, not only was her father able to rebuild, he rebuilt, he rebuilt, and then he helped others. He continued to help others throughout his life. And, and I think that that was a, you know, that was a powerful message. But, you know, she said, you know, she, she expressed how proud she was of her father. But obviously she has reason to be. Wow. And then another descendant, Sharon McWhite. Her great-grandfather was July Perry's brother. And she talked about how there were so many stories that, out there. She really seems to be focused on trying to get to the truth of all of those stories and the different versions of the stories. And, and I think her feeling was, you know, as, as we talked to her, I think her feeling was a lot of people don't necessarily want the truth told or don't want the story told. They're not trying very hard to, I guess, recognize what happened. She also talked about making good for what happened. Obviously, a lot of people lost land. They lost property. And they were never made whole. And that was very important to her as well. And she wasn't the only family member that talked about that. But at the very least, she says, you know, I drive through a, a Koei today. She says, there's really nothing that recognizes. And I know that there is a plaque out there now. It recognizes this is this happened, the, the Ocoee, the Ocoee 
uh, riots or election riots, but she's talking about, I don't see anything that says this is, this is, or July Perry Boulevard or a park or, you know, some recognition that he was there, he lived, he worked, he was a part of this community before, before these events of November 2nd and 3rd happened in 1920. And the family members also, even with the wording of wanting it, wanting it to be called massacre and not riot, that's, that's another point that they bring up when they're talking about history, versions of history and the story and all of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, so, you know, even as, as we go through the, the history ourselves, reading about this and we see the ACOE election day violence, we see the ACOE uh, race riots sometimes or riots. But, you, you know, people like Gladys Bell said to me, this was this was no this is no riot. This is no this is no election day violence. This was a massacre. And I think the, the other point they raise is they say we don't even know to this day how many people died. We don't know. Uh, another story with uh, Sharon McWhite, she talked about how her great grandfather was notified about what happened to his brother. And she talked about a member of law enforcement coming to the door as a courtesy to say, you know, you know, that he had been killed. And and you think about that and how horrifying that must have been to get that notification and probably not have a, a very I mean, eventually, I imagine you have a very good idea of what happened, but what happened to him was so horrific and so violent that, that they probably could not have comprehended exactly what happened when, when that notification first came, of course. Oh, there's so many looming questions, but here's one that I still have to this day. Moses Norman. Do we know what happened to him? Because as this all unfolds, we're told that he ran from Okoe, he hid, he escaped, he ended up in another part of Central Florida and then another part of Florida. Do we know what happened to him? I can tell you what, what we believe happened to him. <laughs> and and it, it's fun, you say that, and, you know, I, and I think we asked each of these family members, hey, what happened to, to Mose Norman? Because obviously they went to July Perry's home looking for Mose and he was not there. Um, it sounds like at some point, and I don't know how long it took him to get there, it sounds like that he made his way to New York State and lived there for many, 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 many years after this deadly and violent incident. So he made it to New York and, and sounds like uh, started a new life there, but, but made it to safety and, and started all over again in, in New York State. And so we don't have any records or any family history or anything about his descendants. Is that correct? Not at this time. Not at this time. Uh, but you never say never, Vanessa. It doesn't mean that we can't eventually find them, given enough time, <laughs> given enough time and enough records. I want to go back to when we talk about some of the accounts, uh, people talking about what they heard about the escape. When you listen to that, what is going through your mind? I will say that um, it's horrifying, but at the same time, 
And, and we all have our own family stories, but, but based on why people relocated to different areas of the country, migrated out of you know, parts of, of the South, I think that you could relate to this story, but it amazed me that it's not something that I, that I read in a textbook somewhere or that even, I wouldn't even call it common knowledge I certainly wouldn't call it common knowledge, even if people had had heard heard this this phrase or had heard of the 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 uh, the uh, the violence or the race riot. I don't think people understand what that meant. I don't think that they understood the level of destruction that you know twenty buildings were raised, that that lives were lost, that uh, that a, a man was lynched. I don't think that they understand all of that. And do you get a sense from the people when they tell the story? What is what is their mood? It happened in 1920, but I would still think it would have such an emotional impact on descendants telling the story of what happened to their ancestors. I don't know if it's an anger, and maybe for some there's some anger, but I think there's a sadness. There's a sadness that anyone would have to endure something like this, but at the same time, you have to appreciate the strength that it took to, to not only escape, but to pick yourself up and to rebuild. And I think that I think that that you have to appreciate the strength, you know, as a, as a descendant of these survivors. I think you have to really appreciate the strength that it took for them to to rebuild and start over again. They were already starting over when they left the Carolinas to come to Florida to find, you know, this this special place called the Coe where they thought they were going to, you know, buy land and and have this community that was snatched from them. And yet somehow they survived that to rebuild in other places, whether it be Tampa, whether it be Plymouth, whether it be one of these other communities that they went to, they somehow managed to survive and rebuild. You have done quite a bit of research on your own family history. I know that's one of your passions. So after hearing their stories, what surprised you the most? I know now that obviously there's, there was state, state legislation passed that this needs to be taught in classrooms that people are going to hear about this incident and, and learn about it in Florida schools. But, I'm, but that happened, you know, not too long. That, this we're talking in the last several months. Uh, the legislation was passed. This, we're talking a hundred years after the fact. So to me, um, it's surprising that it took so long um, to, to find this official recognition. And even today, I think there are folks that would rather not talk about it. And so what do you think from the interviews, listening to the descendants, what has impacted you the most personally? as a journalist, as a storyteller? I think the fact that the family has not given up on, on sharing what's a very dark piece of their own past. They've not given up on telling the story. They don't want people to forget that it happened. They're still pushing for wider recognition of what happened. Some of them are still pushing for reparations for property that their family lost and was never paid for. And I have to admire their resilience 
and even though this happened, no one, no one was spewing. I think anything that was that was bitter, that was that was angry, that was they. You know, I know that it, it's a hundred years ago. It's a dark legacy, but their faith and that always played a large part in this family clearly was not lost as a result of what happened. If anything, it's something that helped hold this family together and is still very much a part of this family, the the descendants today. And some of those relatives, the descendants say that their ancestors, their relatives never came back. In fact, I think it was Gladys Bell who said she heard that Caritha, Mr. Perry's daughter, never even wanted to hear the word Okoe. And I understand. I can I can only imagine for her it was so while others were running and could hear that the gunfire, I know they lost their homes, they lost everything. But to be there when someone comes for your father, to be shot and to be in a gun battle and to have him taken away. And of course, you know, Caritha and her mother ended up in a, in a jail cell for a while for safekeeping themselves. I'm sure they had no idea what was going to happen to them. Uh, a mob took their father. Why wouldn't a mob take them? To, to have to go through that type of experience and to survive and come out on the other side, I can understand why she wouldn't want to come back. And, and for those who did, those who didn't go far enough away that, you know, you, you still pass, if you're in St. Cloud or, you know, or you're in, you know, uh, if you're in Apopka or, or Plymouth, you still see a Coey, there still is a great sadness for them. Those that were still in the area. I mean, they didn't go through, they went around. It's like they weren't going through a Coey. Um, but I can understand why someone like, like Caritha would, would never, never come back. And the exodus of Black families lasted many, many years. Well, I'm from Orlando, Florida, and but my grandparents lived in Apopka, Florida. And my grandfather would always alert me about Okoye. You can't go anywhere near Okoye. You can't drive by, you can't, you certainly can't be there after dark. You know, you just can't go to Okoye. That's on the next episode of the Okoe Massacre Podcast. The Okoe Massacre Podcast is a Cox Media Group original produced by Vanessa Eccles, Karen Parks, Melanie Holt, Deanna Albritton, and Inage Broom in collaboration with executive producer Darlene Jones, craft editor Tristan Peterson, and graphic artist Cindy Kelly.